Scientist Talk Shop. Our guest today is Brandon Cooper, who's an assistant professor at Texas Christian University College of Science and Engineering in Fort Worth. Hi, Brent. Hi. Nice to see you. <laughs> Likewise. Uh, around the room, we've got Michael Ferries. Hello. Uh, Charlie Wilson. Hi. Carlos Palladini. Hello. Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And me. I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So um, you uh, work on peripheral motor dynamics of song production in avian species, and I... I just wanted to start off with sort of a kind of all-purpose question. Um, in terms of the peripheral motor systems, there seems to be this complicated dance that happens and that controls acoustic structure of song in terms of the motor systems for respiration, beak movements, you know, the vocal organ, the syrinx um, movements. They all seem to delimit one another and interact with one another and ultimately impact the temporal structure of song. So based on this, you wrote... Um, Behavioral complexity may in some degree be the result of peripheral biomechanical aspects and interactions and simple neural adjustments in their control. A quote that I love in its evocation of the master-slave <laughs> dichotomy. Um, but could you talk a little about, about that that quote in terms of the, the song may, may system? May I read my own quote again? <laughs> I, I got it right. <laughs> no, I... Well, we don't say, have, read it again. Yeah, behavioral complexity. I'm just marveling in my own ambiguity. Behavioral complexity may in some degree be the result of peripheral and biomechanical aspects and interactions, simple. Oh, okay. And the neural adjustments in the control. I'm not actually sure that's me. Um, it's the last time I use a quote in a podcast. First <laughs> <laughs> the last time. No, um, it, it, might, it might be, but what this You're is... Which one of your reviews? Yeah, well, I mean, actually, I think I'm right here. I, if it were me... Whoever would, said that. Whoever said that is <laughs> probably right. Um, yeah, genius and ambiguity as well, though, which is a constant perplexing challenge. So what you have here are... What I'm describing, if I'm... Indeed, the author of this quote um, is the view of biomechanics being of respiratory control in the terms of your, uh, just think about the rib cage and you've got to expand and contract this at the level of movements of that of the rib cage. You have biomechanics in terms of movement at the level of the local organ. And you can have small changes in neural control that can lead to dramatic changes in the acoustic output of the syrinx. And so the biomechanics sets constraints upon what the neural control can do, and what uh, some, and this may stem from some modeling work that we have uh, with Franz Goller, where we've looked in, at models of nonlinear dynamics of singing and song production. Small adjustments in pressure amplitude can lead to dramatic changes in acoustic output in these models, and that's part of what this is referring to is you can have subtle adjustments nearly that transform the song dramatically. So presumably that bird uh, has to discover the nonlinear dynamics of the motor system in order to use it properly to make this song. Presumably, yeah. Uh, like, I mean, I can the envision this as, it's as accidental. It's or already, it's innate. That knowledge is already built in. Right, yeah. Yeah, you can, and there are innate components to um, bird calls. All bird calls, not all, but many of the bird calls are innate. And so you have innate components built in. And I mean, presume, and people assume that with song, that 
you may take these innate components and then modify them, take the call structure of this innate component, and then add additional acoustic complexity onto it. And so you discover these interactions then as what you're describing in the process of songwriting. So, so if that's true, if it's so sensitive to, to things even as coarse as air sac pressure, do, you, do your birds, when you actually cannulate them to record air sac pressure, I mean, I don't know how tight all the surgeries are and stuff, but if you poke a hole in there and they're a little bit leakier when the cannula starts to come out, then you would think there's a period of adjustment where they have to do that that would make a big difference in the acoustics. Well, or it could be. Right? It could be. I've never noticed anything where they, where it's been an issue, but it, it could be. And the question of whether or not they even attend to um, respiratory pressure, I think, is an interesting one that hasn't been shown yet. Whether they attend to their respiratory state and know if there are subtle changes. And sensory receptors, they respond to change, right? And it's a difference and not absolute levels. And so I wonder if they can detect the small differences that come with putting the cannula in or the leakage that comes around it. But the leakage is pretty... On purpose and see if they would compensate for it. We've tried it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so what I did is I uh, took and gave a cannula on each side of the bird, one that went to the transducer and one that would go to a pressure-sensitive valve and would pop open whenever the bird would sing. Now, the downside with this pressure-sensitive valve is that it generated noise at the same time, but the birds did not compensate for that. What Rod Southers has done is he injected air into the respiratory system, and he's shown that they do have feedback with a pressure injection into it. So going out, loss of pressure, I don't know whether or not we can get it again, but with injections into the air and expansion of the air sacs, they will detect that respiratory difference. And they can, these cardinals can. Do they compensate for it? And then they compensate, so they compensate for it, and so they so detect it and compensate. Ends up being normal. Well, what they do is, if you record the expiratory muscles and the activity of the expiratory muscles while the bird is singing, and if you inject air only in the first third of the syllable, it, if it's in the last third of the syllable, it doesn't work. But in the first third of the syllable, what birds then do is they'll reduce the amplitude of the expiratory muscles and they don't compress as hard because it's as if they've compressed too much with that pressure injection. So there's a sensitive period at the start of the syllable that birds seem to deal with feedback of this injected air, but it's only at the beginning of the syllable. So just to backtrack a little mm -hmm. bit, what are the points of contact between the periphery and the central um, anterior forebrain? Okay, so... They, uh, you have the main driving inputs into the syrinx come from the hypoglossal nucleus, uh, the tracheosyringeal portion of the hypoglossal nucleus, which is one of your 12 cranial nerves. And it's, it's the 12th cranial nerve that's innervating the syrinx, and it comes down uh, in birds, it's ipsilateral innervation. So you have the left side of the um, brain inter innervating the left side of the syrinx and the right side of the brain innervating the right side of the syrinx. And in birds, they can make sound producing, they can produce sound either on the left side or the right side, or both simultaneously. And then the other point of innervation would be into the respiratory center, where you have a ventral respiratory group, uh, and the names are escaping me, the abbreviations are popping into my mind of RAM and PAM and 
the, um, the this ventral respiratory group in the lateral medulla innervates the spinal cord and those bulbal spinal neurons that then control expiration and inspiration. And so those are your points of output. Now sensory feedback um, from syrinx to brain, there's a branch, the uh, 12th cranial nerve is a mixed sensory nerve, so you have motor output and sensory feedback coming back. And Botcher, Sarah Botcher and Art Arnold, they lesioned the sensory route that provides feedback back to the brain and didn't notice dramatic changes in song. Um, and so the assumption in the field has been that uh, sensory feedback from the vocal organ isn't critical. Um, Rod Southers drew attention to this potential respiratory feedback with this, but the source of that feedback is completely unknown. No one has a clue what's actually providing that feedback to the brain and what the sensory pathways might would be. Um, you could have CO2 receptors telling you your respiratory state from the lungs. You can have um, stretch receptors, perhaps, would be another option. But a clear, definitive answer to the sensory feedback that's from the respiratory system is not present, is not known at this time. So you've identified um, motor patterns in the respiratory system during learning that resemble songs but are inaudible. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about that work since it's not fully out there yet and um, you know, just generally how that impinges on your ideas of song development? So with song development, if you take this idea of what we discussed earlier here of calls being morphed perhaps into song. Um, one of the ideas that you can have is that you have an underlying motor structure that gets expanded and refined to produce acoustic syllables. And an idea I have, and I don't, I wouldn't say I have conclusive support for it yet, with some indications that maybe this bird sings silently, and that may be an underlying motor pattern that gets expanded and forms a song syllable. And we've discovered that if you record respiratory patterns of birds when they're in this early song learning stage, they breathe as if they're singing, but they don't produce any sound. The uh, syrinx seems to be in what we call a partially adducted state, where they're uh, moving the labia partially into the airstream, but not completely to produce sound. So they don't get the labia close enough to vibrate and produce sound but they generate respiratory pressure, so that's the breathing pattern without the sound production. And the hypothesis I have is that this um, underlying motor pattern is what birds modify and use to create song syllables, a more advanced acoustic structure in their song. So do you, do you see any, rehearse, any correlate of this rehearsal in other motor systems, like in the beak and the, the mandible? And mm -hmm. do you um, we, most of the time when young birds are in plastic song, they actually don't even open their beak. Their beaks are usually closed, and birds usually open their beaks when they're singing loudly in high-frequency sounds. And in the case of these young juveniles, they're, they're not opening their beaks much during singing. And so we don't see a correlate there. Um, it, but I haven't measured beak opening during the entire period, so I'm assuming it more than... So you found, though, that... that Neural activity in in RA, which is the one nucleus of the anterior forebrain, um, the song production motor, song production pathway. That activity leads these respirations that look like song but aren't. Um, what does that tell us? We were curious first whether or not this is just heavy breathing, 
Or is this an unlearned feature of song, I mean, unlearned uh, call type and not a song structure? If you legionare um, in young birds, what you find, or in adult birds, too, you find that they don't sing a normal song. So RA is critical for normal song, but they can still make calls and they can still breathe normally. So the underlying respiratory pattern isn't dependent upon RA. Unlearned calls aren't dependent upon RA. Learned features of song depend upon the activity of RA during singing. So we wanted to explore whether or not you would have activity in RA, in particular the dorsal RA that innervates the respiratory, um, uh, the respiratory centers in the medulla. And so we recorded multi-unit activity in dorsal RA. And um, what Zhao, I can't pronounce his last name, um, he's you know, working at Rutgers University, has done this work with me. And Zhao has shown that what you have is a peak of activity that precedes singing by 25 to 30 milliseconds. And that's true for both vocal and subvocal events. And so this indicates to us that it's a learn, or part of the learned portion of song, or learned song production, as opposed to being an unlearned part or respiratory, unlearned respiration pattern. So you said these are, are sub-vocal events, so how, how sub-vocal are they completely silent? They're not completely silent. If you, what we did is we recorded tracheal airflow. And within this tracheal airflow, you can get pick up some sound vibrations at lower frequencies. And so if you place a flow probe in the trachea, you can actually have a microphone placed about two millimeters away from the sound source. So any really soft sounds that um, you might not pick up from a microphone that's placed 12 centimeters above the bird, um, you might be able to pick up with this flow probe. And so we did this to look to see whether or not they're truly subvocal. And what we found is that there is some sound production and it's within a frequency range of song, but it's usually during only an isolated part of it and it's not nearly as loud as um, the microphone. What we so, don't know is whether the bird can hear this. That was my next question, yeah. So can you record like in the ear or something like that and, and just determine whether they're actually just listening to themselves? And so what you right. think is a subvocal silent thing is actually, to the bird, is still practicing singing. We know yeah. that auditory signals, auditory feedback is a big teaching signal. Yeah, so given, given this, at this point, um, we don't know. My intuition, my hunch is that it's too soft and too quiet to, to be heard um, and to transmit through the bone conduction that would be required. I don't think this would make it through into transmission of the auditory nerve. But uh, it's an open question of whether or not they can hear this or not. So, um, I mean, technically, you should probably call these semi-subvocal mm -hmm. or partially subvocal um, because it, it's not completely inaudible. But it's very soft, and it's indicating that you have a transition state where you don't quite make the full phonatory configuration of the syrinx a partial one. And so you're in almost in the steps. If you envision... Song production is a series of steps at first forcing the air out of the lungs, second moving the syrinx into a phonatory position, then generating vibrations at the level of the syrinx. This, the second step in this is only partial and not complete. So it seems like um, most models of song learning are really obsessed with uh, this process, maybe partially imagined, of comparing the bird's own output to some remembered tutor song, some sort of template inside. 
And uh, it, it seems to me that if uh, if these subvocal uh, events are, contribute to song learning, then it's hard to see how they would fit within that paradigm. And so, mm-hmm. do you have any uh, a more general uh, more general ideas for how song learning proceeds that don't rely exclusively on this template matching process? Well, there's more to song than meets the ear. If you think about it, what do you have to do to learn to sing? Part of it is you have to pay attention to the acoustic structure. Another part of it is the respiratory patterns and the motor patterns. And you have to pay attention to sensory feedback from respiratory and motor systems. So what encompasses this remembered song representation, in my mind, is a distributed representation, including auditory, somatosensory feedback, um, respiratory feedback, and probably also syringal feedback. And that combination is what you're learning when you're practicing the song. And the focus has been on the song and has been on the acoustic structure, primarily because that's what we hear. I mean, but there's more to the learning process than just the, uh, the acoustic yeah, but that's what the bird hears too, right? So part of the... The template is is acoustic, right? Yes, and that is part of it. And that's what you're saying is it's encompassed all of those into the song memory. So what defines the memory of the song, in my mind, is not just what the bird... Is it the bird's own song that he produces? So this template starts with an auditory memory, but what the bird is actively doing is remembering past renditions of what it's produced on the motor system and paying attention to those motor systems to refine those to accurately reproduce that auditory memory. I guess my question is, so how does that refinement process work? You know, if, you're, if you're just talking about the auditory process, you can imagine that you know, there's a, the only thing that the bird uh, gets directly from the tutor is this auditory memory. And the process of song learning can be some sort of, uh, a process of kind of some sort of selection where there's random variation in the motor output, and then there's an auditory comparison between what the bird produces and what he remembers, and he selects variants that are closer in auditory space. Uh, but he, he can't do that for all these other dimensions you mentioned. He doesn't have a, a tutor version of those. All he has is a recollection of his own production, his, his own proprioceptive feedback. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of modeling those aspects of learning and whatever role those play, I mean, you can't stick with this template matching hypothesis, presumably. Unless, right. unless that the auditory part is driving the whole thing. Well, that's usually what we mean by learning the dynamics of the motor system. So I would like to balance a hat on the end of a cane on my finger, and I know exactly what that looks like. I've seen it done by others, and I know exactly what I'm going for. How come I just can't do that? And the reason is I don't know the dynamics of that thing yet. So now I have to learn how it feels to move my hand in the right way so that I'll get the visual hat on the end of the cane thing that I'm trying for. And that's the hard part of Wait. learning to balance yeah, the hat on the end of the cane. It would just be as simple as getting the respiratory system and the syrinx motor systems in register because, mm-hmm. you know, presumably the syrinx is also doing these sorts of motor, random motor movements as well. That, that may, I mean, that's why we get these strange... Uh, this is why we get the acoustic output during the learning phase. It sounds nothing like the actual song. Yeah, if, you, if you record EMGs, uh, it's um, data they're currently being collected right now, as well as part of this project, is also to look at syringal EMGs. You'll see that the syrinx is active and the muscles are active long before 
even you see it with pressure. So what you see is this, what you've just described, of even perhaps the syrinx is practicing its movements even before you have the onset of singing and the respiratory pressurization for singing. So I've been, I was struck by this when I was in Utah this past summer and was watching, again, what I love to do, which is watching the data come in and saw this with syringeal muscle activity. The ventralis muscle is contracting away, and then the bird goes into sync. So right right before the song, and it comes, it comes in about a second before. And it's repeated before the song. Now, this, this is another part of you know, data that are relatively recent and being collected now in the N of one, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not collecting those data or involved with that part of the project at this point, so I don't know what more details, but I was struck by this and watching it. Never seen anything quite like it because I've recorded it, EMGs from adult zebra finches, and you don't see this period of activity for the second before song. You just don't see anything like it. Just like with adults, you don't see these subvocal events. You don't see anything like that. Well, you do see a central buildup for quite a while, say an HVC. But it's only 50 milliseconds before the song, not a 500 milliseconds. Well, I think it's a lot more, longer than that. Some subthreshold when they're recording the interneurons and HVC, they get, it seems longer buildup than right before. I don't know whether you include intro notes or it becomes. Yeah, my, my memory was uh, 50 milliseconds beforehand, but I. And so in talking with uh, Mark about these data, he, he was struck by this as well in terms of the period of time before song. So the actual numbers, I may have wrong on this, but um, well, where some vocal song, events yeah. are occurring. Cause, um, so Mark Schmidt is a, um, a person who's recorded HVC neural activity in songbirds, and he's shown that it precedes the onset of singing activity. Uh, part of the pre-motor system for song production. And we've talked at length about these data. And so I think that these subvocal events are outside the realm of what is typical for the adult range for HBC. So I'll push this a little bit forward because I think, you know, the song system has a great tradition of N equal one uh, experiments <laughs> going around and people talking about that. The podcast is a perfect way to generate, you know, to expand that and have more people talking about things and have much data behind them. Yeah. But so, was there any? Uh, was there any? Did, did it seem like at all that it was tied in rhythm at all to just the respiration? Yeah, literally, I watched it on the That's day of the so I, <laughs> I'm not positive on that. Um, my assumption would be because with every breath you have activity uh, in the uh, ventralis, you'll see activity as for opening of the syrinx and zebra finches are a little bit unique because uh, the So they do that, norm they do they that normally? Will, they will normally do that, but it's the amplitude that oh. was oh, strikingly different and compared to the amplitude of pressure that you're watching. So is that true for mo uh, most avian species that they actually have to open their throat to breathe? Yes, absolutely. So every every breath a bird takes requires uh, input down to ventralis to the VTB will actually open up the airway. Um, well, that's it's interesting because then it really 
you know, really suggest there's probably a lot of crosstalk already in innate breathing circuits between absolutely the syrinx and the respiration. Because I always thought of them as two separate things that have to be coordinated. Well, they have to be coordinated, yes, be coordinated. but they're already coordinated to a rough degree just to be able to say. And then to generate, the syrinx is involved in eating, um, drinking, pooping, and singing. <laughs> to my knowledge, those are the main areas. So you already what have before. Yeah, what else, yeah, else is that we're done there? Um, but you'll see you have to coordinate the activity of the syrinx to regulate pressure for all of those. So they actually pump air to, to drink and will modulate air pressure for that. They'll do the same thing for pooping. So uh, you have strong well, there's a, you know, there's a connection there that I had in, in uh, this crazy guy and in, in, I lived with in San Francisco that learned tube and throat singing, and he described it on the radio. The way he did that was sitting on the toilet, and he, and then he could learn how to do the tube and throat singing. So I didn't know that. The vocal learning. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> so is there, is there a difference in, in learning songs from uh, species of birds that don't have tutors? So what I'm trying to get at is like, well, for example, like I guess the, the cuckoo bird um, doesn't have a tutor, right? Um, they just get dropped off in somebody else's nest, and yet they still have to find a mate when they grow up, even though they've never heard anybody. Uh, do, do you think these would have subvocal um, uh, vocalizations, I guess, I mean, for lack of a better term? Uh, that they use while they're still trying to figure out their innate song. So, or, or do they learn songs, but it's more innate, but they still have to perfect it, and just the motor output. So what I'm trying to get at is, are these subvocal localizations part of the internal template that they're trying to match, or is it, again, just a coordination issue with all the muscles involved? I, I assume a motor coordination, and with birds that are... Um, raised by others, and in a situation like brown-headed cowbirds, sometimes learning can be delayed, and the timing and sensitive periods can be delayed, and so cowbirds can learn throughout with a delayed sensitive period and being able to learn when they actually flock together in a juvenile state. So that's, that's part of the solution that they have for managing to still get song exposure is to have an elongated sensory period. Um, and so I would assume, and in every species we've recorded, we've seen something like these subvocal events. Um, we've we've seen this in white-crowned sparrows. We've seen it in starlings. We've seen it in uh, cardinal. Or Rod Southers has seen it in cardinals. And so it's been documented in some form in every species I know of, um, either just by recording, but again, unpublished, except for Rod <laughs> Southers shows one in a figure in a, in a book chapter, and so most of these are still in published data. No, but that's, a, that's, a really cool, I mean, that's a really cool question, right? Whether non-vocal learners actually do go through the same thing. Like with birds, there's not every bird learns their vocalization, oh, right, right, right? Right, right, right. But when we say a bird doesn't have to learn its vocalization, does that mean that it, it has an innate template? Or does it mean that it has an innate motor program? Because if, they, if they're just born with the template, then they still have to go through all the procedural learning steps. They just don't have to learn the template to begin with. 
Um, is that the way it is? Is that what it's uh, called? Uh, that's what I'm asking. <laughs> 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 yeah, I've actually never heard of a culture that says. I mean, yeah. the, the experiment to do is, is uh, I mean, if it's a template, it's a it's an auditory template like the rest, right? The experiment to do is deaf and uh, deaf and non-vocal learners. We still sing I guess it may be the way it depends well, on what you mean by non-vocal learner, right? You're yeah. talking about songbirds that don't depend upon uh, tutor instruction to develop some simple innate song, or you talk about birds that are not Aussies, birds right, that just call. Right, and so I think Right. That's really where, I think that's what yeah. we want to head towards and looking at sub Aussies, whether or not you would see them there. I don't know what sub Aussies mean, but yes. But it, they're non-vocal learners, so... Okay. They would be semi-sub Aussies now that they're doing semi-sub-vocalizations. Even that distinction is hard because you'll have duetting species of sub Aussies. And how do they learn to synchronize their song when they're duetting the male and female singing together? somehow synchronize their song with no learning. I, this whole distinction and categorization of um, no vocal learning versus vocal learning, I think, is one that we're going to gradually see morph into a continuum where sub shows some learning, but maybe not to the same degree as what you see in Aussies. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well, Michael. Uh, so I know that there are reports that some... so. There's a little terminological confusion. So, what we mean by subossing. So, one of the, the biggest order of birds are called uh, passerines. And uh, almost all, but not all, passerines are songbirds. Ossines are songbirds. Subossines refers to that specific group of passerines that are not songbirds. Uh, and we're excluding from that category all other kinds of birds like you know, chickens and things like that. So there is some evidence that sub-Aussines that are birds that are in the same order as songbirds, but they're not technically songbirds, have, have show some signs for song learning. And I think this is, uh, this is still controversial, but one of the original evidences for, one of the original pieces of evidence for the fact that birds learn to sing is that the existence of regional dialects. And you know, another one was the effects of death. So... Apparently, some sub they do produce complex vocalizations that uh, a layperson would call a song, at least some of them do, and there appear to be regional dialects. And so I personally think that it's likely that um, sub have some sort of system uh, that is somewhere between a full-fledged song system and nothing at all. But I, I, would, I would guess that something like a chicken... Turkey right. is not going to have a system like that. It's not going to be a part of some sort of song learning continuum. They have innate vocalizations, probably like uh, all birds do. So innate vocalization, though, meaning they just make whatever sound they make, and they un- and they don't ever critically evaluate whether. But it's does their mate? Sound. Does a potential mate? Is this used for for like the copulatory behaviors? Um, so I don't have any comprehensive knowledge of that, but it's not a, a major uh, attractant like it is for songbirds. So, you know, they have different kinds of displays, but you know, these are birds that, you know, if you deafen them, they can still produce their limited repertoire of vocalization without any apparent uh, deficit. So there doesn't seem to be any evidence that they have to learn. They pr- probably have to develop in some sense like other behaviors develop, but they don't copy from some sort of auditory template. And as far as I know, a lot of them it's not a major part of their sexual display. Well, so you, this 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 whole topic of what vocal learning is actually comes in. I agree, it'll start to get fuzzier. Um, 
when we talk restrict about vocal learnings and talk about how special you know humans are and songbirds and stuff, it's not like that other species don't learn how to use their vocalizations, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, primates are very sophisticated to how they use their vocalizations. That the the contention is, and whether that stands uh, stands up completely, is that they have a certain repertoire that's innate. They don't learn what the, vo- the sounds that they make, but they can learn a lot about what the sounds that they make mean. And so there's also this dichotomy, which I never quite you know, figured out how to operationalize it, that you started. Um, it's the way you set up your, your, your talk today about the difference between the difference between a selective, uh, um, a selective strategy where you produce lots of stuff and then you select down to what you, that you, what you end up with versus some kind of productive strategy where you start with some precursors and develop them into what you learn. And so, in some ways, this kind of, the selective strategy of selecting out different vocalizations, that learning could be, you know, that's very similar to what you would expect to be non-vocal learners uh, to learn. They produce a lot of vocalizations and various things and select out to produce the vocalizations they have in the appropriate kinds of, thing, uh, of circumstances. And there may be different parts of the system. I mean, both strategies are likely to be happening, right? Yeah, different so. part of the systems may be, uh, may be coming together, right, and doing both things. So some things about a sub-bossing, whether there's parts of the learning strategy or the problem that's uh, uh, the circuits that are doing, say, selection, may be you know, there in sub uh, but not fully develop some of this production mechanism. Well, yep. I think we want to make some kind of distinction because the, the the songbirds we use it as a very good model of speaking in humans, and we don't really have any other tractable model for language in humans and learning in language in humans, which is the major selling point of studying songbirds. So we kind of want to make that kind of a distinction where they're. Um, learning in humans is just us figuring out what all the grunts mean, um, or is it something that's more complex in terms of communication so that we can put forth other more abstract ideas and podcasts and fun things like that? Uh, so, you know, are these sub vocalizations part of the grunting, which may have some meaning, or, or some kind of, um, or is it some kind of motor? learning, which has some other kind of meaning, or is it really part of the repertoire of songbirds that they need in order to learn how to sing properly, and therefore can be applied to human language as well? Yeah, well, the, no, I, I agree. It's the totally the, the interesting question. The question is, which parts of the task? I mean, that's part of the thing that comes from doing cool things like Brent is doing, um, is, you know, like it has to go to the, the periphery, right? So, uh, so you see everything there in the periphery, right? So you have to look, you have to figure out where it comes from. Yeah. And we should point out your, your work on social context and how um, some of your, I guess, if you want, I, I guess I can talk about the work that you've done in the past. Sure. Um, some really important work on uh, song tempo and how you found that durations of two different, of, of inspiration versus expiration actually vary differently depending on um, uh, the bird's motivation. And, you know, you can... Elaborate on that if you want to just comment. I think most people might be familiar with the work in the field. But, you know, there's there's that, and then there's also uh, multimodal communication that you've looked at in the past. Um, another set of really important experiments. If you want to comment, I mean, it's, there's so much more to the story. 
with the social context with that, I, I was primarily interested in how do birds change the rhythm, and I assumed that both expiration and inspiration would change in the same rhythm, in the same pattern. And what we know is that when a male bird sings to a female bird, he does so with a faster song and a more stereotyped song, and it's part of an advertisement to the female of, look at how sexy I am, and uh, part of mate selection of trying to attract a mate. And so with this uh, stereotype song, perhaps it's signaling how sexy and fit this individual is. And I expected that this tempo change would be controlled and would be uniform across both expiration and inspiration. And what I found in, um, is that you have, in, from my data, what I'm seeing is you have two different oscillators, of, apparently an expiration and an inspiration and that you differentially and only really speed up the expiratory, which is when you're producing sound. The inspiration seems to not be affected and driven in the same way. And so I view this as one, one oscillator that's modulated by tempo, or by social context, and another that's more fixed and rigid. So inspirations appear to be a more fixed and rigid part of the song. Does that fit, Todd? With no, it's completely opposite. I thought it was exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, but I've always wondered. But each of you only have N of one, right? So. <laughs> right. So I've been curious about it. Uh, puzzling me for I don't know how many years now, four years, three yeah. years now. Yeah, so I've been curious to figure this out. So what we showed was normal variation in not female-directed song, so just normal variation in song tempo. Sometimes the, the song is faster, sometimes the song is slower. And the, with that variation, also it's not spread evenly over um, the acoustic parts where we're measuring things acoustically, so it's one potential difference, right? Of this, the length of the syllables, of the acoustic syllables, um, when the bird, say when the song speeds up, those speed up less than the silent periods between the syllables. Now, it's possible that they, the syrinx just cuts things off, uh, or the actually the respiration is actually changing the expiratory pulse a lot, but they're just not changing the part of the expiratory pulse where the, the syrinx is in configuration to make the sound. So that's one possible disconnect. The other disconnect is we, we started to look at uh, the difference between uh, female directed song and undirected song, and look because that's the difference that's the that, that, that was doing. Yeah. The problem is is that we didn't we weren't convinced because there's subtle changes in the acoustic structure, and we're using the acoustic structure to measure the time. Yes. That I think we can do it. We just had to be more careful than we had time for. <laughs> so you to look for those differences, you have to worry about whether the differences in timing you measure are acoustic differences or actual differences in timing. Well, the the the, the expiratory um, phases that you measure don't overlap with the acoustic measurements that you're making at all. I mean, necessarily, they're always smaller, aren't they? The acoustics will always be slightly shorter um, than the. In a, sure. in a variable way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it should be. Well, yeah, might be, might be variable. It'd be yeah, interesting to know just which one, so, which one is more variable, yeah. the acoustic. Because uh, you could ask if you have data like Brenda has, 
So which is more variable, the respiratory mm -hmm. system or the serious? Yeah, the, the, it's like, you know, the stats. The struggle, the, <laughs> the, the hard part with the uh, directed is the female calls interlaced with the acoustic. And so the advantage that I had in being able to, I, by focusing on pressure and respiratory pattern, the female can call as much as she wants, and it, I can still get every measurement in the, in the recording session because I'm not dependent what she does and so I, that's also why I didn't end up analyzing my acoustics like, there's many sexes from Mars so it only applies to birds of course that's right of course so. okay great this has been so much fun thanks so much Brent Cooper and this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop thank you